The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 26, 1 through 16. You can find this on page 831 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to take this one as our gift to you. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman, <clears throat> a, wo excuse me. <clears throat> a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you so much, Mindy, for reading God's word for us and for doing our welcome this morning. Uh, my name is Paul Brandis, and I have the pleasure of serving here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as one of the associate pastors. And I want to add my welcome in to Mindy's and offer a, an additional uh, invitation to Wednesday, uh, the 22nd, here at the Brookside Campus to serve with Adelante Thrift. It's cool. In the video, you got a chance to see uh, some shots of the store. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of work that goes into the store and into those items before they even get out on the floor and have the nice little price tags on them. And as a church, we're seeking to, to help out as much as we can early on in the process. So Adelante Thrift has a warehouse. They store a lot of their early donations. We were just actually up there yesterday um, sorting through the clothes at a quality control level. So is this sellable? Is it, is it not? We rebag it. And then in a few weeks, I'm going to bring probably those same clothes here. We're going to be in the lower level and we're going to sort them into men's and women's and kids. And uh, 
Antoine, the, the first guy in the video, has told me over and over again how helpful that is as they seek to really get ahead of their donations and get these items out onto the floor. So if you're available in a few weeks, we'd love to invite you to come and do that with us here uh, Wednesday the 22nd from 6 to 8.30. Well, the last time and I was on this podium back in January, um, I asked for your patience if I got a phone call in the middle and had to run out because my wife might have been going into labor. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but today I ask for your patience if I keel over and fall asleep because we are uh, three and a half weeks into having not our first but our second child, and uh, so glad to report that, that everybody's happy and healthy. Not a ton of sleep, but I hope that and pray that that comes, uh, and wanted also to just take a moment to thank you so much for your prayers and your encouragement and your help, uh, the meals that many of you have made for us. Uh, thank you so much. We feel, my wife and my uh, two sons, feel the love and support of our church family and are, are grateful to call Brookside our church home. So thank you. Uh, if you would, bow your heads and pray with me as we seek to understand what God has for us in Matthew 26. Lord God, this morning we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, before my wife Ashley and I had either of our sons, Bevan and Owen, uh, we first got married and we celebrated seven years of marriage just back in December. So we're, uh, we're rounding kind of hopefully a first lap in marriage for us. And as many people do after they get married, we took a honeymoon. And, and while it's taken us a little while to admit it, um, I'm here this morning to be honest with you, we really dropped the ball on our honeymoon. I think both of us would take a do-over if we could. Uh, and there was a couple reasons for this as to why our honeymoon was a bit of a bust. Uh, the first, and, and really I have no idea how we didn't more seriously consider this, uh, we did a cruise, but Ashley hates boats and doesn't feel safe in water. <laughs> yeah, true story. So we were off to a bad start as soon as we left the dock. <laughs> Uh, and it got worse because, well, we did a cheap cruise. We did a low-budget cruise line. We uh, No frills. It was short. I mean, kind of the whole nine yards, but the other direction, whatever that metaphor would be, right? We didn't pull out the whole nine yards. <laughs> and now, it, just even a few years later, we wish we had. We wish we hadn't held back. We wish we had given more. And the nice thing is we're going to be able to hopefully redeem that, right? I mean, you only get one honeymoon if you do this wedding thing and marriage thing right, and we're hoping to, but we're going to be vacationing together for plenty of years, and so we've already started to talk about our 10-year anniversary, what might we do that will make up for it and, and give us some better stories, although it's pretty good stories that we have now, right? And that's kind of the point. Yeah, we regret it. We wish we had given more. We wish we had done it right. We wish we hadn't held back, but it's not that big of a deal. I've kind of got a funny story and some good memories. But there's other things in life that if we hold back, it's far more costly. Isn't that true? There's other, other things in life where if we don't give it our all, and we come up way short. And I think that's the point of Matthew 26 this morning. I think Matthew, in putting these stories together that Mindy just read for us, is, is trying to help us see what happens when we don't give Jesus our all. What happens when we hold back from him? 
Now, uh, this is our 50th week in the book of Matthew. Yes, that's right, 50, 5-0. If you can believe it, we actually started in December of 2015, way back in the day with a couple breaks here or there, and and we're near the end. There's only 28 chapters in Matthew. We're going to cover them over the next seven weeks. It's been a long road. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it. I think it's been a good road along the way, studying this gospel account of Jesus' life. And our passage this morning marks the final transition in Matthew's writing. From this point on, and and this has been dripped throughout his gospel to this point, but from here on out, it's all about the cross. It's all about the cross. And as we'll see, ironically, the cross is the king's triumph. The cross is King Jesus' triumph somehow, some way. Well, today is also the first Sunday in the Lenten season. We kicked off the Lenten season on Wednesday with an Ash Wednesday service a few days ago. Many of, you, many of you joined us for that. And Lent is the time set aside by Christians for centuries to remember Jesus' sufferings on our behalf. If you haven't gotten a Lent devotional that we produced, I'd highly encourage you to pick one of those up. These are wonderful, uh, short devotional readings that are designed to help guide us through this season as we kind of march along with Jesus towards Easter Sunday and Good Friday. But we're not there yet. So back to this story in Matthew 26. It is Jesus' final week of his life. He dies on Friday. This is on Tuesday, most likely. And Jesus has just finished a sermon to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25 about the end of the world. If you missed either one of those sermons that we preached here on those chapters, Bill did a great job covering some really difficult teaching from Jesus, and you can catch up on the podcast. So Jesus is finishing this sermon, and he's the best preacher of all time, and every good sermon needs a conclusion, and that's what we get to at the beginning of our passage here in Matthew 26. We get to the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, and it's not what you'd expect. It's, it's not what probably the disciples expected at this point, even though Jesus has said these words to them before. Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 26 read this, When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, when he had finished his sermon, he then said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Kind of a weird way to end a sermon. What would you do if I ended my sermon today that way? But again, Jesus has said this before, not once, not twice, not three times. This is his fourth time warning his closest followers about what his end will be. That's the backdrop of our story this morning. And it's interesting because as you hear the way Jesus frames it, he's not surprised by it. He knows. He knows what he came here for. He knows where it's all headed. And he knows it has to happen too. And it's important too to to see that this comes first before what happens in verses 3 to 5, right? Because Jesus is setting it up. He's saying, this is the point. This is why I came. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But God's still in control of all this. And then Matthew zooms out in verses 3 and 5, and and the scene changes. It's, It's no longer Jesus with his disciples, but we're in some back hidden room somewhere, and and we have Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders, and they're plotting against him. And that order is significant, isn't it? Who's really in control here? Is it Jesus or is it the religious leaders? We get a glimpse into what his enemies are going to do. They're going to wait. 
There's a feast, there's a festival, the Passover is coming, and they're going to wait until the Passover is over so that the crowds don't give them any trouble when they try to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And this was probably a really shrewd calculation on their part. During times like the Passover feast in Jerusalem, the population would increase by as much as five times what it normally was. Five times the amount of people in a city. And some, if not many, of those out-of-towners may have been fans or followers or disciples of this Rabbi Jesus. I mean, when feasts and festivals were happening, the city of Jerusalem was like a stick of dynamite. And the religious leaders, they know that a, a public arrest of a beloved public figure could be the, st- the match that lets off the stick of dynamite. And so they're going to play it safe. They're going to wait unless the perfect opportunity arose to arrest Jesus in secret. Maybe in the quiet of a garden at 2 a.m. after being betrayed by someone close to him. And it's at this point in the narrative of Jesus' life that you really feel the page turn to the final chapter. And the first five verses really set that up. As I was studying it this week, it, it's, it reminded me it's like the real-life version of when Harry Potter's walking to the Forbidden Forest in book seven. No, just me, okay? All right, fine. Go ahead, read it, you'll see. But the ending's coming, and it's just a matter of that final showdown. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then there's this weird story of a woman spilling perfume on Jesus that seemingly comes out of nowhere. But it's even stranger than that because she didn't just accidentally spill it on him, she intentionally poured it on him. What's going on here? Matthew 26, verse 6, tells us that the story happened when Jesus was in the town of Bethany. And back in Matthew 21, we found out that Jesus, while the, most of the scenes of Jesus' life in his final week take place in the city of Jerusalem, he was actually spending his nights in the town of Bethany. And it may have been that he just couldn't find a room with how busy the city of Jerusalem was, but I think it's more likely that he was retreating to Bethany. You see, Bethany, just two or three miles outside of Jerusalem, was a place of comfort for Jesus. He had really, really good friends who lived there. You know how that is when you travel to a place and you know you have a home that you can stay in, a place of comfort? His friends that get mentioned in the gospel accounts over and over again, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they lived in Bethany. And in fact, the way John tells this story from Matthew 26 in his gospel account of Jesus' life sheds some more light on the context and on the characters of what's happening here in our story this morning. Because you see, in John 11, Jesus has just performed one of his most astounding miracles of his whole ministry on earth, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's not as though Jesus was with with Lazarus when he passed away, and he kind of did the, hey, just, you know, get up, and maybe he wasn't really dead. Lazarus has been dead for days. He's dead and buried. There's weeping. There is mourning. And Jesus, he weeps, he mourns, death is real, death is a monster, and yet Jesus stands at a closed grave and says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. That's John 11. And then John 12 is where the Apostle John, he tells his version of our story this morning that we find in Matthew 26. And so the dinner 
that Matthew mentions is actually probably a celebration feast because, you know, someone that was dead and buried is now alive again and reclining at the table with Jesus and the other guests. So you can imagine then that this wasn't just an ordinary dinner or wasn't even just an ordinary celebration. The guests at this feast in John 12 and Matthew 26, they would have been stunned. Jesus, who time and time again has proved his power over disease, over the wind and the waves, over everything, has now just proved his power over even death itself. And in the excitement of Lazarus' resurrection, I think Jesus' followers forgot. I think they forgot his many warnings. I think he, they forgot that he would soon be going the way of Lazarus. They forgot that he was soon going to be delivered over to be killed and crucified. And I can't blame them. If I was there at this party, I mean, Jesus' warnings would seem wrong. What do you mean you're going to die, Jesus? You just raised Lazarus from the dead. You're more powerful than even death. But it seems like there's one person who didn't forget. While the feast is happening, Mary, Matthew doesn't name the woman in his version, but John tells us that it was Mary. She's one of Lazarus' sisters, and she enters the room with a very expensive, good-smelling ointment this perfume, essentially, around her neck in an alabaster flask. Now, this wasn't strange at all for her time because simply, in Jesus' day, people were kind of stinky. They didn't shower. They didn't have Old Spice. The waste management systems were lacking. And this is the Middle East. The temperatures are high. The paved roads are non-existent. Everyone walked everywhere in open sandals. And when you get a bunch of stinky people together, that's kind of an exponential effect, isn't it? So to solve this problem, people brought out at parties or celebration feasts, or they even wore good-smelling perfume to mask the odor. And so while it would be weird for me to wear a couple car tree ornaments around my neck to (laughs) cover up my B.O., what Mary is doing here with the alabaster flask of perfume, this is the common practice of the day. But what Mary does next isn't the standard practice of the day. Instead of leaving the perfume around her neck to deodorize herself in the room, she heads straight towards Jesus. Now, it was fairly typical for the honored house guest to receive some anointing on their head, which is to say it was typical for them to have some good-smelling perfume poured on their head, but it was normally just a drop or two And it usually was the common household oils. It wasn't the good stuff. And let me say, Mary is locked and loaded with the good stuff. Matthew in verse 7 says that the perfume was very expensive. But John, he he gets specific. He says that it was worth probably 300 denarii. 300 denarii is equal to the wage earnings of an average worker for one entire year. Think fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars hanging in an alabaster fl- flask around Mary's neck as she enters the room. I sort of imagine the room quieting as Mary approaches Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus had just raised her brother from the dead. I'd want to see what she was going to do. 
I'd hush up and watch. And it would have been shocking enough if Jesus had used, or if, I'm sorry, if Mary had used this expensive perfume in the normal fashion with just one or two drops. That would have been extravagant, that would have been generous, that would have been over the top. But Mary doesn't stop there, does she? She goes above and beyond. Mary gives Jesus everything. She takes the flask and breaks it open. And that moment would have really been something because when you break it open, it means you can't fix it again. Don't have super glue. She's got a plan. She breaks the flask open and she pours the whole of it on Jesus' head. Empties it all. There's so much good smelling perfume on Jesus that Matthew highlights the fact that Mary poured it on his head while John points out the fact that there's some on his feet. There's enough perfume that it's covering all of Jesus. All of Jesus. But she doesn't have any of it left. She's given it all. Which raises so many questions, doesn't it? How long had she saved for it? What sacrifices had she made to get it? How hard had she worked? Was she embarrassed to publicly show Jesus her love? And frankly, what about tomorrow when she stinks again? Or or what if she runs out of money, but now she doesn't have this asset to sell? Is she going to regret honoring Jesus in this way? Well, as it turns out, we're not the only ones who have questions Matthew 26, verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. It's easy to see their point, isn't it? Keep it, sell it, save it, redistribute it. Anything other than pour it out. Think of it as emptying your your 401k to buy one really nice bottle of scotch for a good friend. That's a nice gesture, sure, but on the other hand, what are you thinking? But actually, if you can believe it, this scene gets even more outrageous because look at how Jesus responds in verses 10 and 11. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of the disciples' reaction, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I want you to picture this scene with me for a moment. I mean, Jesus is reclining at the table. They didn't have chairs. They sat at lower tables, and that's even probably why the perfume trickles down to his feet, because he's lying on his side, as was the custom. So he's lying there on his side. He's got perfume in his hair all the way down to his feet. In John's gospel account, it actually says that Mary had taken her hair out, which was very uncommon, to wash Jesus' feet with the perfume. All of this is happening in front of you. You're a disciple. Of course you're thinking, what the heck is going on here? And you're waiting for Jesus' response, aren't you? I mean, isn't that just the, I'm not saying anything until he says something moment of all time? And what does Jesus say? He looks around at this confused room. He looks around at this room that is indignant. They're angry. They don't get it. And he says, hey, I'm worth this. I deserve it. Isn't that incredible? What do you think the room was like at that point? Can you feel their anger with them, their disdain, their confusion? If I'm there, I'm thinking, who does this guy think he is? 
I think it's important to say after verse 11 that Jesus isn't ignoring or demeaning the poor. It can kind of seem like he's really cavalier with them. Oh, the poor, sure, they'll always be there, but you're not always going to have me. That's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, the core point of Jesus' sermon in just the previous week that we looked at was that Jesus' followers must love whom the world ignores. If you study the whole of Jesus' life, then you'll see how much of it centered upon his love and care for the poor. So that's not what's happening here, which leads us to ask the question, what is happening here? Why is this okay? And really what we have to step back from and, and, and step back at a really big macro level is to see the uniqueness of this moment in Matthew 26. Because, and, and this sounds like hyperbole, but there is no other moment like what's happening here in this final week of Jesus' life. And that's something that I believe because I believe the, the life and then the death and resurrection of Jesus to be the most central and important moment in all of human history. I mean, again, that sounds big, it sounds over the top, it sounds like there's no way that could be true, but, but think about it with me. If the old story is true, if the old story that's been told for years is true, and Jesus is God in the flesh, come to die on our behalf, save us from our sins, and then defeat death three days later, what compares with that? What compares to what happened in first century Palestine 2,000 years ago with a man named Jesus? For my money, nothing compares with that. And so this week leading up to Jesus' life, this moment at the house of Simon the leper, it is more significant than we can even imagine. And Jesus, he telegraphs that. Because you look, he continues on in verse 12, and this is what he says is happening. He says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus is preparing for the moment of all time when he will give himself up for the sins of the world. That's what's happening in this story. This week is the climax of the whole of human history. And Mary, and Mary in this over-the-top act of sacrifice and generosity, she knows more than she knows, you know? By her act, she was preparing the Son of God for the entire reason that he came. And because of her trust and surrender to Jesus, he, he offers her this incredible promise in verse 13. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I mean, it just keeps getting better because now is he not only saying, hey, I deserve this lavish gift. He's also saying, and my story is going to be told in all time and in all places. It's the ultimate, who does this guy think he is? He's a rabbi carpenter from Podunk, Nazareth. He's a Jew living under Roman rule. And yet he believes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that his story will be told forever throughout the whole of the world. And yet, here we are in Kansas City in 2017, 2,000 plus years past this event, 6,000 plus miles away from where it happened, and what are we doing this morning? I'm telling you Jesus' story, and who gets a massive shout out? Mary, who prepared him for his burial. I mean, I think verse 13 is spot on. 
in a way that seemed unimaginable and unbelievable at the time. But this moment, this story, for some reason is also the last straw for Judas. Judas, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' core disciples, he heard all the sermons. He saw all the miracles. He traveled with Jesus, ate with Jesus, hung out with Jesus. They were friends. Yet he leaves and he sells Jesus for nothing. Verses Verses 14 through 16 read this. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What will you give me if I give you Jesus? Like trading Pokemon cards. Except he doesn't even negotiate. I'll literally take anything for Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, fine, whatever. Just get him out of my hair. Don't you want to know why? Why, Judas? Why'd you do it? Was it all of Jesus' talk about death, about the cross? Was this all just moving too slow? Like, this isn't the revolution that I signed up for. Was it the shocking nature of the kingdom that Jesus kept describing? Okay, I like kingdom, but it seems upside down and backwards. I don't know. We can't know for sure. The other gospel writers, they mention Judas' greed, but it can't just be his greed because 30 pieces of silver is nothing. Think about how badly the religious leaders wanted Jesus. We're looking for an opportunity to betray him in secret, and arrest him. Judas is sitting on on a gold mine. He could have gotten way more than 30 pieces of silver. So part of me wonders if the breaking point for Judas was seeing Mary's extravagant, heart abandoned love. He's there. He witnesses this. I wonder if it was seeing that and then combined with recognizing his own stingy hard heartedness. Was seeing her and how much she loved Jesus a bit like looking in a funhouse mirror? Again, we can't know for sure, but I think it's clear that Matthew wants us to see the connection between Mary and Judas. The placement of these stories next to one another is no mistake. And put together, when we read them as we have this morning and study them as we have this morning, I think this central idea comes through more than any other. You can anoint Jesus with everything or you can sell him for nothing. You can anoint Jesus with everything, or you can sell him for nothing. To put it in the form of a question, we might ask this morning, are we more like Mary, or are we more like Judas? Because as we've seen over and over again in Matthew's gospel, there is no middle ground with Jesus. You can crown him or you can crucify him. You can love him or you can hate him. You can give him everything or you can sell him for nothing. But the one thing you can't do with Jesus is remain in the middle. Because apathy or not choosing with Jesus is choosing. So are we going to be Mary or are we going to be Judas? And I think there's three lessons to help guide us from this story as we consider that question. The first lesson is this. Jesus wants everything from you. 
Jesus wants everything from you. And I think this point really jumps off the page in this story, doesn't it? Because Jesus might not command Mary on the front end to to give up the perfume, but he certainly commends her on the back end for doing it, doesn't he? 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote these words, and they haunt me every time I read them. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And I think that quote is equally true if we sub out the words, the entire creation for my entire life. There is not one square inch of my entire life about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And yeah, I get it, that's big, that's overwhelming, that's audacious on the part of Jesus. Sure, who does he think he is that he gets my whole life? But, but if Jesus is who he said he was, and God come to save us from our number one problem, sin, then this demand starts to come into focus a little bit. This demand starts to make just a little bit more sense if Jesus is who he said he was. And so while none of us necessarily want to hear it this morning, I think we have to say it. There is no cost too high, no gift too extravagant, no affection too strong, no sacrifice too big. There is nothing that if we're followers of Jesus, he cannot ask of us. And so to get at it, right, the question is, can you say yes to Jesus before even knowing what he's going to ask for? I think about your life for a moment. All of it, who you are, what you have, the totality of it. What's the hardest thing as you consider your life to think about as we consider this point? Money, time, relationships? He wants all of it. Your career, your family, your hobbies, he demands it. Your health, your life, your reputation, if you want to follow Jesus, it all belongs to him. And here's what's true. Our allegiance always follows our affections. So so I want to ask this morning, and this question has been hard for me this week, do I even like Jesus? Do you even like Jesus? Or is church just a box to check each week? Let's say you happen to live in first century Palestine instead of in 21st century Kansas City. Would you have had any chance of being Mary? Would you have had any chance of being so taken with Jesus that you would have anointed him with everything? I don't know that I would have. I think it's way more likely that I would have been one of the disciples standing in what I thought was silent judgment of Mary, or gulp, what if I would have been one of the religious leaders, not even with Jesus, plotting instead to secretly kill him? Don't forget, this story is so clear, Jesus wants everything from you. But it's also clear that nothing is wasted if given to Jesus. Yes, he wants everything, but it's not wasted if we give it to him, which is so important. If Jesus is demanding everything from us, then it's vital to know that it's not going to waste. And let's just, for a second, think about all the waste that is in our life. I'll use again myself as an example. I waste my money on stuff that I don't need. I waste my time by scrolling on Twitter on my smartphone. 
or just being lazy. I waste daily opportunities to love my wife well or spend time with my kids. That's plural now, that's weird. I waste my words, so many words. You all know how much I talk. If we take time to look around us, I bet that we'll all notice a growing landfill of waste surrounding each of us. But nothing is wasted if given to Jesus. I mean, take Mary in the story. Everyone else thinks it's a waste. Perfume in Jesus' hair, who cares? Jesus does. He knows what's coming for him. And he knows that he's not going to be properly prepared for burial. And he knows that that's what's happening in this moment. And this beautiful moment of affection and generosity now echoes for all eternity. And she'll be remembered forever. While Judas, on the other hand, is remembered as the worst betrayer in all of history. Benedict Arnold, please. He's got nothing on Judas. And yet you and I, we sell Jesus for less every day. We sell him for a moment of pleasure or independence or power. And I think this is one of the most terrifying aspects of these stories being back-to-back for me because we can't get away with thinking that, well, Mary really knew Jesus, but, but Judas must have just been kind of on the margins. Mary responded well and gave him everything because she was close with him, she knew him, but, but Judas must not really have been in. I mean, do you notice how Matthew does that? One of the twelve, Judas, went to betray him. Both Mary and Judas knew Jesus intimately. And the reason that's so terrifying is because what it tells us is that it's possible to know Jesus, it's possible to even journey with Jesus for a while, and yet not be fully transformed by him. And that's scary. And it leads me to wonder if perhaps Judas fell more in love with Jesus' mission than with the person of Jesus himself. And you can't separate those things if you do it correctly. You can't separate who Jesus is from what he came to do and his mission. But maybe that's what Judas tried to do. Maybe that's where he went wrong. Maybe he tried to separate the person of Jesus from the mission of Jesus, and he misunderstood the mission of Jesus. So he swung and missed. I don't know. But I do know how clearly Mary loved the person of Jesus. That much is obvious. And because she loved the person of Jesus, she trusted him with everything. And she was one of the people who on the other side, so Good Friday is hard for us, but we know the ending of the story. Imagine being there for Good Friday when you don't know that Sunday is coming. That's Mary. And yet she gets to see the other side and she has this beautiful encounter with Jesus one-on-one. She gets to see the other side and I'm willing to bet she would agree with this, that nothing is wasted if given to Jesus. Of course, the reverse is also true. Everything is wasted without Jesus. If we try to hold on to it all ourselves, whatever all is, it all crumbles through our fingers. Your kids will turn out successful, but without Jesus. Your retirement fund will grow bigger, but without Jesus. You have everything you could ever want, but at the end, you'll die empty-handed. So why not empty those hands now to him? Listen, whatever we hold on to ourselves, 
We're either going to ruin, we're going to squander, or we're going to die glued to it. And I say this this morning because I know me too well not to say it. I need someone else to manage my family, my priorities, my work, my time, my money. He's going to do a better job with it than I am anyway. Nothing is wasted if given to Jesus. And finally, and this, this is the most important. If we stopped short here, we would be missing it all because no one deserves it like Jesus. No one deserves it like Jesus because you see, we're not just giving everything over to a tyrant. We're not giving it over to a cruel overload, try, overlord trying to ruin our joy. Not at all. We're giving it all up to the king of everything, to the one who made the heavens and the earth, to the one who made the perfume that features so centrally in this story. We're giving it all up to the one who made Mary herself, creator. And we're not giving it up to a king who's sitting back, soaking it all in, removed from the messiness that we see so clearly down here. No, this king of everything set his glory aside and entered our brokenness to fix it. This king of everything set his glory aside, entered our brokenness to fix it with his death and burial, which Mary prepares him for. And that's the great turn in the story. You see, over and over again in the Bible, as you go throughout it, it's kings who are anointed, kings and future kings. And so you get to this story in Matthew 26, and you see that, that Mary anoints Jesus, and you think, wow, this is incredible. Mary knows, Mary knows that Jesus is her king, even though he's a carpenter, even though he's a traveling rabbi who doesn't have his own home, doesn't have a place to lay his head. She knows that he's the king. That's why she's anointing him. And that's true. It is. But then the twist, this is a king who dies. She's preparing me for my burial, Jesus says. Jesus, the king of everything, who willingly gives up his life for his subjects, subjects who rebel against him. I mean, that's extravagance, isn't it? You see, friends, we only think the most extravagant person in this story is Mary. But she's not. Oh, yes, she's generous. She's over the top. She gave everything. But Mary is anointing the one person in history who gave literally everything for someone else when he didn't have to, who gave everything for you and for me. The one who left his throne, entered our world, died on a cross, and burst forth three days later. Yes, Mary broke her jar, but God broke his own son on the cross for you and for me. Yes, Mary poured out her perfume, but Jesus poured out his own blood for you and for me. Don't miss this. No one loves you more extravagantly than Jesus. No one. He has given us everything, and he deserves nothing less from each of us, a response of total surrender, not out of duty, but out of joy, not out of thanksgiving, but out of joy, not out of duty, but out of celebration. And if you do respond in total surrender, if you do act like Mary and give it all to him, then you'll discover the great secret that Jesus promised all the way back in Matthew 10. It's a paradox. It doesn't seem to make sense. But those who have done this know the truth of Matthew 10 where Jesus says this. He says, if you cling to your life, if you cling to it, how often do I cling to my own life? If you cling to your life, you will lose it. 
But if you give up your life for me, Jesus, for me, Jesus, then what? Then you will find it. So let me ask you one more time. Will you sell Jesus for nothing or will you anoint him with everything? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus who makes it possible to surrender everything to him and to you and to receive life eternal. I pray, Father, that we would be Mary, that we would willingly give up everything for you because you have first given up everything for us. Amen.